be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 24. Genesis 24, and we'll read verses 1 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, Drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking that, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let down her pitcher to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran back to the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So it was, when the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels of gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, as you can see, I have split chapter 24 into two sermons. 
Uh, we'll look at the second half next week, Lord willing. But this morning, I want to look at the beginning of the search for a bride for Isaac. Now, if you go online and you search for sermons on this text, you will find a good number of sermons uh, on how to find a spouse, uh, the sorts of things to look for in a wife. Uh, and, and that's not bad. There are definitely principles here that we can apply in that way. Uh, John MacArthur approaches this text from the perspective of learning about servanthood. And so he draws lessons from the example of Abraham's servant and makes some excellent points uh, from this chapter on that subject. But that's not how I want to approach this text. And, and here's why. As I read through this text uh, this week and, and thought about it, I kept asking, what is the main point here? What, what is the Holy Spirit trying to tell us in, in this history? And it seemed to me that the main point had to do with knowing the will of God and responding to God's sovereignty in all things. I mean, we're told in verse 15 that the woman is Rebecca. Abraham's grandniece. The servant, though, doesn't find that out until verse 24. And so I kept thinking, why, why let us know? Why not keep us in suspense with the servant? I mean, wouldn't that be better storytelling? Now, and by the way, when I say storytelling, I don't mean that this is a story that isn't true. This is true history. I just mean that History is a narrative that can be told like a story. Uh, and, and so it can be a joy to read history. If you've ever read a great biography, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, we often say of a good history that it reads like a story. And what we mean is that it's engaging. It keeps your attention. It's not dry and boring. Uh, downstairs in our library, we have a number of missionary biographies. Uh, one of my favorites is To the Golden Shore, The Life of Adoniram Judson. It's a wonderful uh, biography of a missionary that reads like a great story. It's very engaging. Uh, another one that I would recommend to you is Nick Needham's 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. It's four volumes. The fifth volume will be released in March, uh, but it's a history of the church from the time of the apostles up the fifth volume will bring it up to the present day, uh, and it is a fantastic read. So that's what I mean uh, when I say that it would, wouldn't it be better storytelling, uh, a better way to tell this narrative history, uh, to keep the reader in suspense along with the servant? But that's not how the history is told. And so I kept asking myself, why? Why would we be told right away who the woman is, removing that element of suspense from the narrative. Surely there's a reason for that. The Holy Spirit didn't do this on accident. And I think that it's because we need to know who the woman is before the servant does, so that when we get to the point where he finds out, we're not finding out with him. If we find out with him, then we're, we're reveling in that, that story element and that suspense being resolved right there, and we might miss his reaction. And I think that his reaction, his response, is really the main point. His response, when he finds out who the woman is, is to worship. 
I think that the appropriate response to God's sovereignty in the details of life is thankful worship. And so that's what we'll see here in the first half of chapter 24. But there is a lot to learn here from uh, this story. His response is in response to what God has done up to that point. And so we need to review the details of the story and then examine his response. So let's work our way through the story as it is told to us and then uh, look at his response at the end. The chapter begins by telling us that Abraham has grown old in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Now we know that Sarah was 127 years old when she passed away in chapter 23, which means Abraham is 137 at that time, and Isaac was 37. In chapter 25, we'll see a genealogy of Isaac that will tell us that he was 40 when he married Rebekah, which means that the events of this chapter take place three years after the death of Sarah. And that means that Abraham is 140 years old at this point. God has blessed him with a long life, with material wealth, with a son and an heir in his old age. But Isaac, that promised son, that heir of the house, does not have a wife. And so Abraham decides to see what can be done to remedy that. And so he calls his most trusted servant and asks the servant to take an oath to, to go and procure a, son, a wife for his son, Isaac. We see this in verses 2 through 4. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now, to just address the odd part of this and get this out of the way, the putting of the hand under the thigh. Uh, this is obviously an uh, important and solemn vow that Abraham is asking this servant to make, uh, and an intimate one between a master and a servant, asking him to go find a wife for his son. This action likely indicates the servant's submission to his master. Uh, the only other time we see this sort of action taken during a vow is in Genesis 47, when Jacob asks Joseph to promise to bury him in the land of Canaan rather than in Egypt. John Gill, in his commentary, indicates that this form of oath-taking was still common in parts of the Mideast uh, there in the mid-1700s. It's as if the servant had knelt before his master and grasped him behind the knees, uh, in, in an act of submission. But in this case, the master is seated, and so the servant puts his hand under the master's leg uh, to indicate his submission to the will of his master. So that's what the servant does, and Abraham asks him to promise to take a wife for Isaac, but not from the people of Canaan, where they live, but rather to return to Abraham's homeland, to Haran, where Abraham's family lives. Now, we don't know who this servant is. His name is never given to us in chapter 24. It is possible that this is Eleazar of Syria, who is mentioned in chapter 15 as the servant who would have been Abraham's heir had he never had a son. 
Eleazar, we were told, was born in Abraham's household. So he is younger than Abraham, and it is possible uh, that he would have grown uh, to be the most uh, the oldest servant in the household. He was intended to be Abraham's heir at one point, so he obviously is a well-loved and trusted servant. So that may be who is being spoken of here, but we don't know for sure. The servant is never named, but he is entrusted with a very important task. Now, Isaac is the son of promise who Abraham had waited 25 years for his birth, and now he's finally uh, come of age, and so Abraham is seeking to find a wife for this heir, and it it shows this servant's faithfulness and his trustworthiness that Abraham would uh, ask him to take charge of such an important task. But before taking the oath, the servant asks a question in verse 5. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Now, that's a fair question. What if I make this journey, as you've asked me to do, I find the perfect bride for your son Isaac, but she won't leave her family and her country? Do I come back here and get Isaac and take him to her? because he's not to marry one of the women of the land. And as we've already noted, Isaac is 40 at this point. He's a full-grown adult. Yet Abraham assumes, and the servant never questions, whether Isaac is okay with this arrangement. The servant questions whether the woman will be okay with it, but he never questions if Isaac will have any problem with not picking out his own bride. He just assumes that Isaac will submit himself to his father in this matter. John Calvin has extensive comments on this and says that it is detestable and barbarian, even that it is not lawful for the children of a family to contract marriage except with the consent of their parents. Well, my, how times have changed. Isaac was 40 And he thought that it would have been barbarian for Isaac to pick his own bride apart from the consent of his parents. Uh, But I'll show in a few minutes that I think Isaac is submitting himself not so much to the will of Abraham in this matter, but to the will of God. Uh, We've already seen in chapter 22 that Isaac's character was such that he was willing to submit himself to the will of God even to the point of death, trusting that his father Abraham knew what God's will was. And so the servant doesn't question if Isaac will go along with this because he knows Isaac's character and his willingness to submit to the will of God. But he does question if the woman will go along with this. So Abraham answers him in verse 6. Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. So this is of utmost importance to Abraham. Isaac is the son of promise. They are living in the land promised to them by God. Isaac is not to return to Abraham's homeland, but is to stay in the promised land. But Abraham is confident that God will work this out. So he continues in verse 7, and he says, The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Now notice how Abraham speaks of God here in verse 7 and also back in verse 3. Here he calls him the Lord God of heaven. 
In verse 3, he called him the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth. Now, the pagan religions of the day often worship territorial deities. Uh, The God of this land and another people in another land would have a different God who ruled over that territory. But Abraham uh, knows that the God that he serves, the God who called him to leave his homeland and to travel to the promised land, is not a localized deity. He is the God of heaven and earth. He is the creator whose authority knows no boundaries. He is able to work to keep his promises in the promised land, in Canaan, but he is equally capable of working his will in the land of Haran, where Abraham's family is located. So Abraham is confident that God will work in advance before the servant even comes to Abraham's family uh, to provide a bride for Isaac. And in his confidence, Abraham is willing to offer his servant a way out. He says in verse 8, And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So if for some reason he's wrong about God's will in this matter, it's more important that Isaac stay in the land of promise than it is that he get a wife. So the servant's question is answered, and he takes the oath in verse 9. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now this servant is in charge of Abraham's whole household, much as Joseph will later be in charge of Potiphar's household. And so he takes charge at this point, and he plans the trip. We see in verse 10, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. So he doesn't ask Abraham how to do what Abraham has asked him to do. Abraham has said, go there and find a wife for my son. And he doesn't go, okay, now, how do you want me to do that? What what do you want me to do? How many camels should I take? How many men should I take? What should I take with me? When should I leave? He doesn't ask. He just does it. He just takes charge. He's a trusted servant. Abraham trusts him to do it. The whole household is in his hands. And that's what it means when it says all of his master's goods were in his hand. He's in charge of the whole household. He has charge over the estate. He doesn't have to ask Abraham's permission. He can just decide how many camels he's going to take. And he thought it best to take ten with whatever goods and other servants he chose to take with him. And so he made it happen. And verse 10 just skims right over all those preparations and the journey uh, so that at the end of it, they're in the city of Nahor. Now, we learn from verse 32, which we'll read next week, that he had other men with him. And from what I've read, a desert journey by camel carrying supplies and trade goods is usually about five camels per three humans. So with ten camels, it's safe to say the servant likely had four or five other men with him, which makes sense. This would ensure the safety of the caravan as he traveled. He's carrying some wealth with him as gifts for the woman and her family. But like I said, verse 10 just breezes across all of those preparations and the journey, and at the end they have arrived in the city of Nahor. Now, Nahor is Abraham's brother, and we know from chapter 25 and later from chapter 28 that he dwells in a region called Padan Aram in the, re- in the area of Syria and in the city of Haran. 
It's a distance of just over 400 miles from where Abraham is located. It would take about 17 to 20 days by camel. And during that journey, I'm sure this servant is thinking about how he's going to locate Abraham's family and how he's going to discern which young woman should be the bride for Isaac. And it appears that he came up with a plan. They stopped at a well on the outskirts of town, verse 11. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. So they've traveled a great distance. They would be tired. The camels are thirsty. So it makes sense they would stop at the well outside of town to refresh themselves. But the servant knows that the women of the town will come out to draw water from the well uh, for the evening needs of their family. And so he expects to meet some of the young women of the city at this time. And he's been thinking about the sort of woman who would make a good wife for Isaac and how he might discern her character. And so he prays in verses 12 to 14. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, Drink, and I will give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master." So he prays for success in his task to find a bride for Isaac, and he prays specifically that God would reveal the chosen woman by her actions. And the actions he has chosen here are kind of asking a bit much if you stop and think about it. I mean, it might be expected that a young woman would, of decent character would show some kindness to a weary traveler and offer him a drink. But to offer without being asked to provide water for the whole caravan, for 10 thirsty camels, it's a bit much. He's asking for a young woman not only to display kindness and hospitality, but excessive generosity and quite a bit of industry and hard work. It's a very specific thing that he's asking for and something that wouldn't be expected from the average young girl. It's meant to filter out those women who are not industrious and hardworking and generous. But more than that, it's meant to place the whole thing in God's hands. He can't expect any young woman to do what he's asked for. So he's putting all of this in God's hands, saying, God, you're going to have to move to make this happen. So he might have anticipated this taking a while. But we see that God answered his prayer before he even finished asking in verse 15. And it happened before he had finished speaking that, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. So now this is where we're told who the young woman is. And immediately our memory is drawn back to the end of chapter 22 when Abraham received news of his family and Rebekah was specifically mentioned. And here she is. Before the servant has even finished his prayer, here she is coming to draw water. But the servant doesn't yet know who she is. And so it says in verse 16, now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. Physical beauty was not part of Abraham's uh, requirements and instructions for the servant. It wasn't part of his prayer that she be beautiful. So this is just an extra blessing of God for Isaac. 
The fact that she's a virgin is not something that the servant could know just by looking at her, but the reader is told this, so we know that she is uh, the proper choice for Abraham, uh, for Isaac's bride. We know this is indeed the woman that God has chosen. But the servant doesn't know this yet. And so it says that she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. So she drew water from the well. But notice that it says she went down to the well and then came up from the well. So they probably had dug down to get to the water and had dug kind of a wide pit uh, to get down to where the water was and had carved probably some circular stairs into this pit to get down to the well in the center. Now this is important because it means that watering 10 camels will mean multiple trips up and down this flight of stairs carrying a large pitcher of water. This is hard work. So she makes the first trip getting water for the needs of her family as she had planned to do. But when she comes up from the well carrying this full pitcher of water, the servant approaches her in verse 17. The servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So as planned, he asked only for a drink for himself. And it it says that he ran to her. Now it could be that she came up and was immediately turned toward the city and he wanted to catch her before she could leave. But partly, I think he's just eager. He's excited. This young woman had shown up before he even finished his prayer. And so I think he has a sense of expectation and anticipation of what God is doing. God is doing something miraculous here. And so verse 18 says, So she said, Drink, my Lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. Quickly let her pitcher down. She didn't know about his task or his prayer, but I think maybe she sensed his excitement and responded to it with enthusiasm. She doesn't know what's going on, but she senses something is happening here. And as he's drinking, he's still wondering, Is she the one? Will she volunteer to water the camels? We know she's the one, but the servant is still in suspense. But then we read verse 19. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. So again, this sense of excitement that she has. And, and she's going down the stairs, carrying these full pitchers of water back up. We don't know how many stairs there are, how deep this well is, but it sounds like pretty intensive labor. And she's running back and forth multiple times to water the caravan. And while she's doing this, the servant is standing there, dumbstruck at what has just happened. Before he even finished his prayer, this young woman came up who's beautiful and kind, and now industrious. She's doing exactly what he had asked God to do, which was unreasonable to expect any young woman to do. And so it says in verse 21, And the man, wondering at her, remained silent, so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. She's a young woman of kindness, generosity, with a good work ethic, all answers to his prayer. But there's one more thing he needs to know. Abraham had said to get a bride from his family. So the servant needs to know, is she part of Abraham's extended family? And so he asks in verse 22, 
So it was, when the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a golden nose ring, weighing half a shekel, and two bracelets for her wrist, weighing ten shekels of gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So he gives her some gifts as thanks for her service, but more than that, I think, it's anticipation and thankfulness to God for what he is doing. And he asks about her family. So now the servant will finally discover what we have known for some time, that this is Rebecca, Abraham's brother's granddaughter. So she answers in verse 24, so she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Now he knows just how spectacular God's answer to his prayer was. Before he had even finished praying, God brought a young woman from Abraham's family to the well, who then proceeded to do what would not be reasonably expected from any young woman, to go above and beyond in serving a stranger and watering his entire caravan. And so now we come to the point, the servant's response to what God has done in verses 26 and 27. Then the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So right there in front of Rebekah, He bows in worship. Now, it says that he bowed down his head and worshiped. Two different Hebrew words, but with similar meanings. Worship often involves bowing down in humility. So this double bowing shows the intensity of his worship and his thankfulness to God, the God of the heaven and earth. God has answered his prayer in a spectacular fashion and with no delay showing that he is sovereign over all the details of life. God led him to exactly the right spot at the right time, which he acknowledges in verse 27. And God brought Rebecca at just that exact moment, even before he had finished praying. She picked up on his excitement, responded with enthusiasm. She's exactly the sort of woman that this industrious and trusted servant would choose to be Isaac's bride. She meets all of Abraham's criteria. She is of his extended family. All that's left to see is, will she go with him or not? And we'll leave that for next week. But to this point, God has worked out all the details in the story. The appropriate response to God's sovereignty is thankful worship. John Salehammer says in his commentary on this passage that God, having seen to every detail... He says, such divine preparation for the descendants of Abraham and the line of the blessing must be accompanied by the kind of appreciation seen in the servant. So he bows himself in humility and thanksgiving before the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. He acknowledges that God has shown great mercy to Abraham. He's made wonderful promises to Abraham concerning his offspring and their inheritance in the land. And God has once again proved himself true to his word. He has provided a bride for the promised son, Isaac. And so looking at all these details that God has worked out, John Calvin says, the thanksgiving, therefore, teaches us always to have the providence of God before our eyes in order that we 
may ascribe to him whatever happens prosperously to us. His point is, we should be on the lookout for God's sovereign ordering of the details of our lives so that we might acknowledge his hand of providence and worship him in thankfulness, just as Abraham's servant did. In our bulletin this morning, we put prayer requests and announcements on the insert. And at the bottom of the page, we put a question from the Baptist Catechism. If there's room, June just puts the next one. I didn't tell her what question to put on here today. Question 15, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. This was a work of God's providence that this question ended up in the bulletin this morning. We see things like this, we are to respond with thankful worship for God's sovereignty over the details of life. But now this brings us to a question that I had as I read this text, one that I'm sure that we've all probably dealt with at one point. The servant prayed a very specific prayer, asking God to confirm something by way of his sovereign control over the circumstances of life, and God did exactly what the servant had asked. And so the question is, should we pray like that? Should we pray and ask God to, God, here, here's, I'm, I'm in Walmart parking lot. I'm getting ready to go in. So if someone comes out and says this to me, then I'll know that you want me to do X, Y, or Z. Should we pray like that? Should we pray asking God to confirm his will in matters that concern us by working out specific details in our circumstances, details that we suggest to God? We've probably all done this or been tempted to at some point, and we've certainly talked to people who have done this, who have perhaps read into the details of their circumstances what they thought God was saying to them concerning his will. So is this a legitimate practice that we should engage in? Calvin comments on the servant's prayer, and he says that it does not follow the two main rules of prayer. That is, the servant does not appear to submit his will to God's, but rather dictates to God the circumstances. And he's looking for certainty in the circumstances rather than in the revealed word of God. So Calvin concludes that God made a special concession in this case because it was extraordinary circumstances. And because this was a special situation, he suggests that this observation, that this is a special situation, may be of use to prevent inquisitive men from adducing this example as a precedent for vain prognostications. There are some big words there, but his point is, no, we shouldn't pray like this. This is a special situation. R.C. Sproul is of a similar mind, saying, God never promises us such special revelations, and finding a wife for Isaac was a special case in the history of redemption. I agree with these esteemed men, but I think it's worth digging a little bit deeper in answering this question, because the reason that we ask this question, the reason we want to pray as this servant did, is because our real question is this. 
How can I know God's will in matters that aren't explicitly stated in the Scripture? How can I know? So I'm looking at this text in Genesis 24, and I'm asking that question. And as I read the text for probably the 20th time, I'm a little thick-headed apparently, I begin to see something that made me ask a different question. Abraham did not have an explicit word from God on this matter, and yet he seemed so confident that he knew what God's will was. And so I begin asking God, why? Why was Abraham so confident on a matter that you hadn't given him an explicit word on? How did he know what God's will was? And then the Holy Spirit began to illuminate my understanding a little bit. I noticed something. Abraham is confident in what God will do in this matter, which God has not spoken explicitly on, because Abraham had meditated for many years on what God had done and on what God had said. And he had reasoned from what God had revealed to what God would do, even though God had not revealed it. Let me show you what I mean. God had promised that Abraham would have many descendants. Genesis 15, 5, Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now those numerous descendants, God then tells him later, would come through Isaac. Genesis 17, 19, Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And so Abraham meditates on these promises that God has revealed to him. And he reasons that since God has promised a multitude of descendants through Isaac, then it must be God's will that Isaac have a wife. How else will he have all these descendants? But not just any wife. God had also said that his descendants would inherit the land of promise in due time. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, we're told in verse, chapter 15, verse 16. So Abraham is a descendant of Noah's son Shem. He likely knows that God had cursed Canaan after the flood and promised the line of Shem would be blessed. So Abraham is confident that it is God's will for Isaac to have a wife and that she must not be a Canaanite. She must come from the line of Shem, not from the line of Canaan, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, which means they will continue to grow worse and worse until they reach the point of God's judgment. Abraham has already seen that in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So he reasons it must be God's will that Isaac's bride come from among his own extended family of the line of Shem. Otherwise, if Isaac marries a woman in the land, he may be exposed to God's wrath and God's judgment. Furthermore, Abraham reasons in verses 6 and 7 here in our text, in response to his servant, Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. 
So because God took Abraham out of his homeland and brought him to the land of promise, and this land is to be an inheritance to his descendants, the descendants of Isaac, then Isaac must stay in the land and not return to Abraham's home and his extended family. Were that to happen, Isaac would be distanced from the blessing of God in the land. So he doesn't want Isaac and his descendants exposed to the judgment of God on the Canaanites. And he doesn't want Isaac and his descendants to settle back in a land from which they came, but to stay in the land of promise. Now he knows, God has told him that they will be slaves in a foreign land and then return to the promised land. But there's a big difference between being slaves in a foreign land than there is being settled comfortably and surrounded by family in your homeland. So reasoning from what God has said, Abraham concludes that it is God's will for Isaac to have a wife. It is God's will that his bride come from among Abraham's extended family. It is God's will that Isaac remain in the land of promise. And so he concludes, God will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Abraham is confident that this is God's will because he has reasoned from what was revealed to what would be done. And so while the servant's prayer might be an exception because of the special import of Isaac in the history of redemption, an exception that we should not emulate, the certainty of Abraham in reasoning from what God has said to a knowledge of his will and matters not spoken of explicitly is something that we can and should emulate. We can follow the same sort of reasoning. If you're looking for a spouse, God has told us what sort of woman makes a good wife and what sort of man makes a good husband. So the first bit of reasoning is to recognize that if you would have the sort of spouse God recommends, you should start by working on your own character to become the sort of spouse that God recommends. Then you can worry about finding a spouse. And we know that God says his children are not to be unequally yoked together with non-believers. And if we marry, it is to be in the Lord. So you should marry another Christian. Well, you've eliminated a sizable portion of the population at this point. And we know that a husband and wife become one flesh or united together and should be of one mind. So it's only reasonable that you should look for a spouse whose theological views closely align with your own. And I say closely, not exactly, because we're in the area of wisdom and prudence. But this limits it even further. So you can see how we can reason from what God has revealed to knowing his will in a particular matter. Now, God hasn't said exactly who each of us should marry. He's left that to us to work out. And while we shouldn't presume to impose on God the particular circumstances we want him to fulfill, as the servant did here in Genesis 24, we can ask for God to work in our circumstances. We can ask God to providentially shut doors that he doesn't want us to walk through and to open the ones that we should, much like Paul asks the Colossians to pray for his ministry Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. Pray for God to work in your circumstances to reveal the particulars of his will. But before you do that, you must have spent time meditating on, studying the word of God so that you know 
what God's will is that he has revealed and that you can reason from that to the particulars. Then you can pray and ask God to open doors of opportunity and to give us eyes to see those doors when he does open them. That's what Calvin said in the quote that I shared earlier, that we should learn to recognize the providence of God in our circumstances and let that move us to worship with thanksgiving. This thanksgiving that the servant displays, he says, teaches us always to have the providence of God before our eyes in order that we may ascribe to him whatever happens prosperously to us. When we begin to see the providence and the sovereignty of God and the details of our circumstances working out his will in our lives, then we'll be moved to worship thankfully. And let me close with this. The servant saw the sovereignty of God working out the details and the events of this chapter. But notice what he says in his prayer as he worships thankfully here at the end of this event. In verse 27, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. He's worked out all the details. And as for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. The Lord led him. The Lord directed his steps. The Lord worked it all out. But he said that he was on the way when the Lord worked it out. He was able to see the Lord's hand of providence working out the details of his circumstances because he was on the way. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Psalm 37, verse 23. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Proverbs 3, 6. The servant was pursuing the will of God as he understood it from Abraham. And from what had been revealed by God and reasoning from that, the servant was pursuing the will of God when God directed his steps in the particulars. We can't expect God to direct our steps in the particulars if we're not pursuing his revealed will. We shouldn't expect him to guide us in matters in which he has not revealed his will. If you're pursuing a spouse and yet paying no attention to the revealed word of God, you're pursuing non-Christians without godly character, not pursuing your own sanctification, not pursuing the revealed will of God, then you can't expect that God will reveal to you the name of the person that you should marry. First, you have to pursue his revealed will and then ask him to work and open doors in your circumstances. And when we do that, we can ask God to open our eyes that we would see his providence all around us, working out those details for his glory and for our good. And then we can respond as this servant did with humility and thanksgiving, recognizing the sovereignty of God as he works out all the details of life. Let's pray.